Hello listeners, once again, welcome to another episode of The Ambience, I'm your host Jay, and in this episode of The Ambience, I'm going to talk about something that is brought up quite often in horror movies and in horror fiction and horror novels as well. Stay tuned. guys back to the ambience i'm your host jay and once again we are going to be talking today about something that has actually been mentioned in horror movies quite a bit um it is the aspect of the supernatural and there have been a lot of theories about a lot of movies and i think the main idea behind a lot of horror movies today is it's the question of whether or not the supernatural is really happening are they experiencing these really truly horrific things or is it all in their mind as they're going insane? Like, it's it's kind of a cop-out with a lot of movies that have uh, specifically, like, psychological horror, like, thrillers and whatnot. Like, take Hide and Seek, for example. It's a great movie starring Robert De Niro and Dakota Fanning. And the idea is that, for the plot, this man and his daughter, after the death of her mother, they move out to this town, and some weird stuff starts happening, and... The main protagonist, played by Robert De Niro, the father figure, he is he's a doctor slash psychiatrist or something, and the thing is, is that he's uh, he notices this stuff is going on, but he doesn't understand how they're happening. Like there's a bit where he has what looks like this blue ink all over his hands, and he can't explain that. He can't explain why these dead creatures keep appearing on his property. And, like, even one of his friends that he becomes close with, she ends up dying, and he still doesn't understand why that happened. I think he even goes so, uh, he even goes so far to believe that the, his little girl even has something to do with it. And all she could mention is that it's this guy named Charlie. So the whole movie, it pretty much escalates to him trying to find this guy Charlie and defend his family from him. But he goes into this room full of his blank notebooks that he uses to record his sessions. You know, he keeps, uh, he keeps daily journals and daily logs of himself. And while he's flipping through some blank pages, he starts having some flashbacks. And he actually caught his wife being unfaithful. And so that night, as they're sleeping in bed, he kills her. And as a result, as a result of that, I think it's this, uh, the trauma from that, actually, it split in his mind, and it caused a psychotic break. And he has more flashbacks in the same scene where it shows the woman that I mentioned earlier, how she was killed, and how she was staged in the bathtub. And the blue ink that I mentioned on Robert De Niro's character's hand, it had to do with, uh, he crushed a butterfly in his hand. And just all these things that previously could not be understood or... Uh, explained. It all had to do with this uh, separate personality that De Niro's character created in his head. And so while it is truly suspenseful, for the majority of the movie, it actually toys with the viewers, and you're looking for this guy named Charlie. You're hoping that De Niro and his little girl stay safe. But what ends up happening is you don't see that it's actually a split in his head until the end. When, uh, after all these flashbacks get done, Dakota Fanning's character as his daughter comes in and she says, can you see now, Daddy? And he's like, it's okay, sweetheart. Daddy's gone now. And that truly is, that truly is terrifying because it's like 
the original personality of the protagonist is now gone, and he's now the main antagonist. And now he's actually embodied this other character that has taken over that was split because of the affair that he discovered. And that same thing, it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's, it's a cop-out, it is, in terms of plot devices, like, uh, like, take Final Destination. Uh, there, I can't remember which one it was in particular, but Final Destination, uh, one character sees this catastrophic event happen, and it sees the death of so many people happen, and they, uh, they get a hold of what is known as death design. You know, and, uh, like the first one, this guy has a premonition of them going on an airplane, and the plane blows up, and he manages to, like, snap back into reality after the premonition, and realizes that the plane is about to go off. He freaks out, and he ends up getting off the plane, but he also convinces, like, four or five other people to come off the plane with him. And as they're waiting in the airport, they watch the plane as it takes off, it's not even 15 seconds after it takes off. It blows up right there in the sky, right above the runway. And they're like, holy crap, this, this thing is real. But then what ends up happening is they, uh, they learn the layout. They remember the layout of their seats that they were seated in in the plane. And death follows that path. So if you were sitting in seat one and somebody was sitting in seat two and seat three and seat four and seat five and you all managed to make it, what ended up happening was, if you were in the movie in this exact situation, is death would be coming after the first per, uh, the first person. And if they were to succeed, if death was to succeed in killing off the first person, they would move on to the second one until the plan was fully realized. But what was interesting about this movie is if you could skip death, if you had a way to uh, see it coming and avoid it, then the plan would change design and that your turn would be skipped and they would be going after whoever was in line after you. And it just keeps going and going and going. But the thing is, is that until everybody in the plan has died or is killed, the, uh, the chase of death never ends. I mean, I like that about the movie. I like it as a plot device. But again, it's just, is it a force of death? Like, is death actually manifesting itself into the form of a force, and is it coming after them? Or is it all in their heads, and maybe they're just all crazy? Like, take, um, like, you could, like, it was actually, I think, debated among the original miniseries It by Stephen King, where you had this group of seven kids who all, their fears manifested in this clown, and they all saw the clown, and the adults couldn't see it, because... They believe they didn't believe in it, or at least that's what the story would like to like us to believe. But what if, what if the characters that are the kids in the book, what if they are actually the ones that are unhinged mentally? What if they are a little bit crazy? You see what I'm saying here? I feel like that kind of thing. <clears throat> it happens a lot in horror movies and thrillers. Like take, uh, like one of my favorite plot. One of my favorite plot twists is. Uh, it's a couple of years ago that happened, uh, actually more than a couple. It was, uh, I think, Jim Carrey's first noted horror-slash-thriller movie called The Number 23. It's where his character, Walter Sparrow, he discovers a book called The Number 23, and he reads it, and he starts to notice that little details in the book actually match details in uh, Jim Carrey's character's own life. But over time, 
he comes to realize that the further he delves into the book, the more he becomes like the main character. And eventually the plot twist happens where he actually discovers that at time, at one time, he was obsessed with the number and he wrote the book that was originally supposed to be written for a suicide note. And he realizes that he is the main character and that he did commit the heinous crime that was, you know, that was talked about in the book. And, uh, I just think it's interesting that the plot twist happened when he realized he is the author of this book. He is the one who murdered this person in this book that was supposed to be a fictional work. I like that as a plot twist, but um, I don't think it takes place in the mind as much as it took place in the past. You see what I'm saying? Like, uh, like one of my favorite plot twists is Fight Club. And Fight Club, it's known for... Fight Club, it's known for its plot twist about how... The main character and his, uh, and the other character, Tyler Durden, played by Brad Pitt, they were, they're the same person, actually, and I just think it's interesting because you can do all this stuff, and you can have this imaginary friend and not even realize that they're imaginary, and it's often overlooked in movies. Well, what brought me to bring this onto the podcast today was I was actually watching a small little mini documentary film about The Shining. More or less, I was watching a uh, I was watching a body count video about it. Even though in The Shining, the movie, the movie adaptation, there were only two kills, but uh, stars Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall. And the premise behind this movie is Jack Nicholson, his character agrees to take watch over the Overlook Hotel because he's a writer and he thinks that he'll get some good writing in. Alright, well, winter comes and sure enough, they're there by themselves and it's a big open area. It's a big open hotel. And he decides to get some writing done but over time, as more and more time goes on, Shelly, Shelly Duvall's character, uh, Wendy, and their son Danny that they have together in the, in the, in the movie, they, uh, like, they bond together and whatnot. And so there are several scenes where it show them having a fun time. But also, there's, uh, there are some scenes where you can just tell that Jack Nicholson's character is becoming slowly, slowly unhinged. Like, there, um, there's fits of agitation. There's a bit where Shelley Duvall's character discovers everything that Jack has been typing on the typewriter. And all it says over and over again for hundreds and hundreds of pages is all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. So, the idea is that the hotel itself is haunted. There were two ideas presented. The hotel was haunted, and Jack Nicholson's character was driven insane by it. And honestly, for the longest time, up until uh, last night actually, I believed that it was all in Jack Nicholson's head, and he was just slowly becoming unhinged. You know how you're on a family vacation, but you feel like you've been on the vacation with the family for like just maybe a bit too long? You kind of just want to get out. You're in one area. You feel boxed in. A lot of people call it cabin fever, and I can, I've suffered from cabin fever as well. You know, it feels like you're just about to lose control, and you feel like you just need to get out, and you start snapping at people, and I've been through that. I think we all have. Because you've ever been in a room where you're just, it's just the same thing. It's just the same people constantly around you. Just hour after hour after hour. And you just want to break that cycle. You just want to get out of it. Well, I thought that that was what was going on in The Shining. And there have been a lot of theories. There have been a lot of fan theories about The Shining. You know, Stanley Kubrick directed it. And um, 
a lot of it, uh, a lot of fan theorists like to say that the movie itself is a big confession about uh, the director's involvement in the moon landing or something. I'm not really in it for that fan theory, but I've formed a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a theory about my about it myself. Not about the moon landing or anything, but about what's really going on at the Overlook Hotel. There's one scene in particular where uh, where clearly Jack's character is out of his mind, and he starts terrorizing his wife Wendy, and uh, she starts trying to plot a way to to get out of the Overlook Hotel with Danny and leave Jack there because she doesn't feel safe with Jack around, <clears throat> and more power to her. But there's a scene in particular. It's the most uh, I believe it's one of the most famous scenes where. Uh, Wendy has a baseball bat, and she just keeps swinging it toward him. She's not hitting him. She's walking backwards as he's, like, forcing her backwards because he's walking toward her. And uh, they shot the scene so many times, and uh, it actually it stressed uh, Shelley Duvall out really bad. And I think that it was actually said that Kubrick wanted her character that stressed because that's ultimately how he wanted the character to look in the actual shot. Now... Every, every director has something new that they're looking into. Every, every director has their own finesse. Every director has their own vision. Their own way of things that they want a specific scene shot. But uh, in this scene in particular, uh, they get to the top of the stair set, and Shelly is still swinging the bat. She's still swinging the bat, and she hits him. She manages to hit him, and then uh, I can't remember if she hits him again. Or if he just falls. But what happens is she hits him and he ends up tumbling backwards down this set of stairs until he reaches the bottom. So he's knocked out. And the next shot is actually, it's a different scene, where uh, Shelly is actually dragging Jack by his feet. And she locks him in one of the food, uh, food refrigerators. And uh, he comes to just before he is locked in. And he tries to convince her that he's fine and that he needs a doctor. He tries to get her to unlock the door. She says that she and Danny are just going to go. And more power to her. Again, I would do the same thing. But, uh, but like, there's another scene. It points to the exact same spot where uh, Nicholson's character wakes back up and he's talking to one of the spirits that he talked to earlier, one of the ghosts. And the ghost is of the old caretaker, and he talks to the caretaker, and he says, if I let you out, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, of course. He's like, if I let you out, can you correct them? And he's like, yes, I can. And so right away, the camera is still facing Jack, but you hear the door click. Now, there is no reason in particular, there's no reason in particular as to why Shelly would open it. There's no reason why Danny would open it. And... It's been said that that scene and that lock click that you hear as, as Jack smiles at it, that is the one logical piece of evidence to support the idea that the hotel is actually haunted. And it isn't just Jack going insane, but it actually is haunted. And I kind of want to believe it too, because... There is like a small, like little uh, series of scenes slash montages, if you will. There's scenes where uh, where Jack actually gets loose thanks to Grady's help, and he starts going after the characters with the fire axe. He's going after Danny, and Shelly's running and trying to find a way uh, to get to Danny and get him safe. All right, well, she's running through the hotel and she starts seeing 
the uh, the exact same stuff that Danny has started seeing as he is shining, uh, such as the famous scene where there's blood pouring everywhere from the elevators, uh, where uh, where there's cobwebs everywhere, and he, she even walks in on the ghosts of two people that are actually involved in a, a taboo sex scene, and I just think it's interesting that Shelley Duvall's character seems to be well-balanced. She seems to be all there mentally. So I'm not worried so much about her going crazy at this point because she's actually, her maternal instincts have taken in as they would naturally. And she's trying to find her son to keep him safe. But at the same time, toward the end of the film, she starts seeing this stuff. And while it is scary to see, prior to, only Jack had really, only scenes with Jack had really shown him seeing with him uh, seeing the ghosts, like interacting with them, but Danny himself, he would see this. He would see certain things too. He would shine. He's uh, he's one of those gifted people, like uh, like the chef that you meet at the beginning of the movie. Uh, he could shine too, and he and Danny ended up shining uh, together back and forth. And uh, so anyway, I'm not worried about Shelley Duvall or Danny's character being insane because. Jack, clearly, he shows uh, traits of insanity. You know, he kills the chef, he sees things, he even talks to ghosts, he even gets drunk on a drink that one of the ghosts pours him. And how that happens, I will never understand. But since Shelley Duvall's character and Danny's character, since they're both uh, full of sound mind and they're mentally there, they're, they're well, they have an average IQ, you know, they're good to go, and they're all there. So they're not insane. And so that feeds more into my theory of the Overlook Hotel actually is really haunted. And Danny is one of those kids who can see ghosts. You know, he's one of those ghosts, or he's not one of those ghosts, rather. He's like the kid in the sixth sense who can see dead people. And I kind of I kind of want to believe that the same thing happened to, uh, to Danny's character that happened to Haley Joel Osmond's character. But, uh, so I think that it's a plausible theory in that the Overlook Hotel is actually haunted. Now, why did I bring this up for today's podcast? I brought this up because I was inspired by last night's episode of Dead Meat, which is where I actually watched the uh, kill count for The Shining. And I found that scene and how, uh, it proves to be evidence against claims that the place is not actually haunted. Well, thanks to that scene in particular, I do think it's haunted. But again, I brought this episode, or, uh, yeah, I brought this episode of the podcast attention to uh, this, this idea that not every character in every horror movie is completely crazy. Like, there are, uh, there are some legit evils that are happening. Take uh, Halloween, uh, Scream, Freddy Krueger, all those movies. Freddy Krueger, maybe not so much because it's a nightmare, but it does happen for real to the characters. And, like, there's one scene in particular called The Uninvited, or it's a movie called The Uninvited, where uh, you discover that the sister of the main character, who the main character talks to, who they bond with, they actually end up being dead the whole time, and the main character just hallucinated them, and the main character just happened to be holding a knife when she thought that it was her sister holding the knife the whole time. And again, I like it as a plot device. Do I think it's overused? 
Of course I do. But then again, a lot of great ideas are overused because there's not any uh, there's not any real original movies being produced today. Uh, every now every now and again you'll get this new movie, but there's so many superhero movies done now. There are so many movies that are done that are just uh, that are just remakes. You know, like why does Halloween need so many sequels? Why did Terminator need any more sequels after the second one? You know. There's no original ideas. There's no original content. Now, granted, there are a lot of movies out there nowadays that do have interesting things going for them, like this new movie coming out called Countdown. It sounds interesting as a plot. I mean, I dig it. But at the same time, I don't know. Like, I've only just seen maybe a handful of trailers, and I don't know if whether or not it's a legit thing where somebody evil is making this app where it tells somebody how much longer they have to live and... Like, you could even take the movie Unfriended, for example. Unfriended, the spirit of this girl that killed herself possesses, like, the computer. So, I don't know. I didn't watch it. I watched uh, a little bit of more uh, film theory videos about it. But uh, you get all these people who end up getting possessed, if you want to do that, air quote, by, uh, by the spirit. And they end up killing themselves in all these different odd ways. Who's to say that they didn't do that against their will because of their own uh, their own sanity collapsing? And I just I like film theories about this stuff, like fan theories, like uh, they exist all over the place. There's fan theories about everything. Like take Pokemon for example. <clears throat> the first episode of Pokemon, Ash gets his first Pokemon, which is Pikachu. Pikachu doesn't want to go back in the Pokeball, and later on in the episode, they're being chased. Uh, by a bunch of Spiro, and what ends up happening is Pikachu uses uh, his electric ability and ends up making all the Spiro faint or fly away, and that's episode one in a nutshell pretty much, but the fan theory is that Ash is actually, thanks to that incident, Ash is actually in a coma, and the entire series, it's all happening inside of his head. Now, I dig that as an idea. It's depressing, but I dig it as an idea. The same thing is said about Harry Potter. Uh, You know, in in Harry Potter, the first movie, you see that Harry's parents are dead, and he's sent to live with his aunt and uncle, the Dursleys. Okay, well, he lives under the stairs in this, like, little closet, if you even want to call it a closet. And uh, the theory suggests that he never went to any magical school. He was never a wizard. And nothing magical ever happened. But instead, at the end of the book, there was actually a meme posted where it was about the book was actually unfinished. And that what should have been written was after the whole 19 years thing happened, 19 years later at the end of the book, where it shows all these characters that have gotten together and they've had all these families. Well, what should have been said, that has been said, is... uh, the fact that Harry woke up and he put on his glasses and he rubbed his well, he rubbed his eyes and he put on his glasses and he got ready for another day at home with the Dursleys, just ready for another average day of their bullying and their taunting and whatnot. And it's a depressing ending and it sucks what ends up happening over the last seven books completely out. You know it does, but at the same time, I like it as a theory. It's one of those things where I believe it's kind of bittersweet. It's bitter in the punch that it gives you. But it's kind of sweet in a way that it fits together. 
mean, I'm into, I'm into like theories and stuff about this, film theories, book theories. It doesn't matter. I just, I like it because it provides another look and it provides more of an explanation as to what the film or book that's, uh, themselves they can't really explain. I mean, this isn't even this next one. This next reference really isn't even related to today's topic, but uh, it's a question that was uh, it was brought up a lot with a lot of fans of the Forrest Gump movie. And Forrest Gump, at the end of it, you see Jenny come back. You see that uh, you see Jenny come back, and you see Forrest run and see her after he learns where she's at. And you find that Jenny has a son named Forrest, and she makes the comment that you're his dad, Forrest. But at the same time, where is her evidence? You know, she doesn't show him a birth certificate. They uh, they've only had they've only had sex once. Forrest Gump has only had sex once. And that was with Jenny on that night, a couple of scenes prior. And uh, what ends up happening, like what ends up happening in the theory is, they go on to name all these things that they went through. Like for example, uh, throughout the film, Jenny finds her way back into Forrest's life, all or Forrest ends up finding his way back into Jenny's life, and uh, it shows these scenes where she gets together with all these people, and they get involved in, you know, they're hippies, they get involved with, you know, just the whole peace and free love thing, and they, uh, they do drugs, and who's to say that under the influence of those drugs, she didn't have sex with anybody but Forrest, who's to say that she didn't, uh, who's to say that she didn't get involved with any, uh, drug-binged orgies, you know what I'm saying, like, there's a scene in particular where, um, <clears throat> like, she's actually, she's coked up, and her lover at the time, presumably her lover, is actually asleep on the, on the bed, and she gets up, and she goes out to the balcony, while Freebird's playing, and she stands up on the railing of the balcony, and she almost loses her footing, and she almost dies. It's like she almost falls to her death. All right, well, who's to say that, even though that could be a lover of hers, who's to say that that man himself, who's to say that, I mean, who's to say that he himself isn't the father? Now, I know that time differences make a change, because there is time that passes between each scene, obviously, but what I'm saying is, Forrest Gump, while his only sexual uh, experience was with Jenny on that one night, he was far from Jenny's first sexual experience. Now, what I'm saying is, Jenny was Forrest's first, but Forrest was like Jenny's 25th or something. Who knows how many men that she has slept with, and maybe women, who knows? I mean, I mean again, free peace love. But what we're talking about here is their quote-unquote child together. Name is Forrest. She claims that Forrest is the father, but Forrest at the but Forrest he doesn't know any better. You know he um, he's got a low IQ. He I'm willing to call it autism, and so he kind of just he loves Jenny so much he's willing to go along with whatever he says, not even questioning it really, not even uh, in a way to get upset even. And in fact, he feels nothing but love for the child. After merely just being told that the child is his, he doesn't demand any proof whatsoever. He immediately starts crying and he starts worrying and he becomes so happy because Jenny says that little Forrest is actually the smartest in his class. And that was Forrest's main concern for the child. Not if the child was his, but if the child was intelligent. Because even though Forrest himself, he was not intelligent like the rest of the world around him, he was intelligent enough, just enough, 
to know that there was something wrong with him. And every time I read that little bit of a uh, realization from that, a lot of people say that, you know, a person who is mentally not as t- intelligent as others, or they have low IQ, or they're special, you know, a lot of people say that they can't help it. They don't understand it. They don't know any better. I think that's bullcrap. Because, deep down, he knows what his issue is. He knows that he's not smart. He knows that there is something wrong with him. But no, it's just... I mean, that theory itself about Forrest Gump and the child not even being his, which I think, honestly, is very plausible. We don't end up knowing who the child is. For all we know, Jenny could have cheated on Forrest with Lieutenant Dan before Lieutenant Dan got married. You know, just there are so many different directions that you could take this theory. But overall, I think it's a plausible theory that proves, air quote, that Little Forrest does not belong to Big Forrest. And there are many reasons that you could explain it. It doesn't necessarily prove that the child is not Forrest's, but I think that uh, in just in response to the theory, I think that it is highly, highly unlikely that for little Forrest does belong to Big Forrest. I mean, timing is an issue. Uh, I think, I think actually in the movie that Jenny really only mentions anything about Forrest taking care of her, not because she even has any feelings for him, but because. She, uh, but because she currently, like, she had AIDS, and she needed somebody to take care of her, and she knew that her time was coming. And a lot of people have gone so far as to say that, uh, that Jenny herself is actually a sociopath. You know, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't care about Forrest. And I think that part of that character trait of Jenny's came from the abuse that she endured from her father, and... Like, while it wasn't even just her, really, it was her sisters also that, uh, that faced the abuse. And I think abuse itself, it, uh, it damages a person. Like, I mean, I don't even have to think it. I know it's true. I've been around people that have had abuse. And, I mean, they're, they're normal functioning adults. And, but they are completely damaged. Something in them is broken. Now, you could either spend your life trying to mend the pieces back together, or you could just realize that, yeah, this happened, yeah, it sucks, this is how it's going to make me see the world. I mean, we don't come out and say that, but when we're growing up, the things that we face, ultimately, they shape how we view the world, you know? Like, if you deal with fake people, obviously you're going to have trust issues, because people are gonna, people are gonna screw you over. They're gonna stab you in the back. They're gonna be your best friend when they don't even know anything about you. Like take work for example. You get a job and you have these coworkers, and pretty soon you develop a rapport with them. You start to develop a friendship, and pretty soon that friendship it deepens. You have this deep friendship with this person, and it's a work family that ends up developing. You know, you start to see this person as your best friend, borderline brother or sister. And you start divulging personal info, you start divulging secrets, and you start talking about things uh, that pertain to work, and some stuff gets said that probably should not need to be said at all, ever, with this person. And what can end up happening is, they actually use that as ammo against you, so that they can get higher, you know? It's how the game is played. There, It's just, it's a game, I believe, that happens in every profession, where... You climb the ladder, and in order to climb the ladder, 
sometimes you've got to step on people to reach the ladder. I mean, it sucks, but that's just the way it is. Take LaGuerta, for example, in Dexter. LaGuerta was, uh, was Deborah's friend. She was, uh, I believe in the show in the beginning, she was Lieutenant. She was Lieutenant LaGuerta, and then all of a sudden she was being promoted to Captain. And she was using Deborah to help get eyes on uh, LaGuerta herself so that she could actually take the spot as captain while the captain became a major and the major retired or something. It's just how the game is played. But anyway, back to the issue. Um, I just think that little theories like that, just in like, not even in like, like real movies, you know, like you can even take them, take the film theories uh, further because a lot of film theories have been done on, uh, like even kids movies. Take Lion King, for example. Scar and Mufasa were the only, like, big male lions in the pride, okay? Well, Scar and, uh, Scar and Mufasa were brothers, okay? Simba is the son of Mufasa. Since they were the only two lions in the pride, that could mean that Nala was Mufasa's daughter. And so Simba and Nala are cousins. You see where I'm going with this? It's a film theory that it makes sense, albeit disgusting sense, but it makes sense nonetheless. And uh, I just think I just think that theories like that are just way, way cool. You know, while they do help, you don't have to take them. I mean, like you don't have to take them for what they are, because all they are in the end are theories. Nothing has been proved with them. They're just theories. But anyway. The reason that I started this podcast again is just, I was watching that thing on The Shining last night, and I got inspired to do this, just today's episode, and just the fact that our horror movies really horror movies because they're in this supernatural world where this supernatural, unexplainable, dark, horrific things are happening to these characters by the fault of somebody else, or really is it just their psyche breaking and they're having a psychotic break with reality and they're actually doing it themselves, but they can't see it that way. You know, you could even go so far as to say that a lot of horror movies themselves, they're kind of like posters, if you will. They're poster children for mental illness. They're poster children for uh, schizophrenia, paranoid schizophrenia, just hallucinogenic psychosomatic disorders, you know? It just causes you to see certain things differently. And, uh, I love those theories. I mean, I just, I love thinking about things like this because what may present itself in one way might be masking another idea. You know, I believe that no one ever does anything for strictly one purpose. I believe that there are ulterior motives always, you know, like no one ever really wants to get ahead just because they want to just make more money. No, there's more of a reason than that. There, like, it feeds into other ideas. People want this position because, like, when a person sees somebody get ahead and they believe, well, you know, that promotion should have been mine. I should be making that much money. I should be doing this. Blah, 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 blah. What they don't see is they're actually doing that so that they can better themselves in one way or another. Albeit, it may be a crooked way to do it. I mean, again, although it may be a crooked way to do it, it just, uh... It's a way to do it, and no one ever does anything for just one straight reason. But anyway, there's always an ulterior motive. Film theories are just theories. You can take them for truth as as you want to. I may even discuss it 
in a final thought for the, today's podcast. Who knows? But anyway, so not every horror movie is legit horror. Not everything has to do with ghosts. Who's to say that Scooby and Shaggy weren't high all the time when they ate those Scooby snacks? You know what I'm saying? Like, who's to say that they were really being chased by ghosts? Who's to say that the entire crew either wasn't crazy or who's to say that they weren't just high all the time, you know? We'll be back with the final thought. Thank you for listening. Thank you listeners for once again tuning in for another episode of the ambience here today on the ambience we talked about the horror genre and we talked about whether or not something supernatural that somebody could see and perceive was actually happening or if it was only happening in the confines of their own mind now my final thought on that is a lot of that is actually happening today a lot of people that suffer from schizophrenia or paranoid delusions even they will they will tell you that they are going through this some will go so far as to believe that they are in fact a supreme being themselves maybe and it's important to note that even if you don't believe what someone is talking about is real it's important for you to understand and respect that they believe it's real it's real to them and people do need help regardless of mental capacity whether you are deemed completely sane or quite the opposite we all need help and just be there for somebody if you feel like somebody is struggling and they tell you something that you think is just completely out of left field and just completely off the wall just go with them and see how you can help them be there for them be their friend but also be willing to get them help this has been the ambience i'm your host jay thank you for listening what are we going to talk about next time Once again, who knows? Thank you.